Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. Yes, and good morning to you here on BFM 999. And uh, you're now tuned to Future Sense. Myself, Nick Jeans, and Steve McDonald. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Nick. That sounds appropriate for uh, today's. It does indeed. Show. It does indeed. We have a special guest today um, on the show in about half an hour or so, and uh, that is Lucy Haslam. Lucy uh, is a retired nurse and uh, has a, a big background in. Um, in caring for people over a long period of time. But in August 2013, Lucy spearheaded the movement to reintroduce medicinal cannabis into Australia. Lucy witnessed the dramatic relief her son, Dan, suffering stage four bowel cancer at the time, gained from using medicinal cannabis. And Dan championed the cause alongside his mother. And together they started a social campaign which ultimately changes Australian laws or has changed Australian laws, but there's a long way to go. And uh, we're going to be talking to her because in uh, a week after next, on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of this month in March in Tweed Heads, there is a symposium on medicinal cannabis at Tweed Heads, uh, pr- produced or presented by United in Compassion, UIC, which is uh, unitedincompassion.com.au, which is her website. So we'll be talking to her in about half an hour, which will be great, uh, about the many, uh, many issues around uh, medicinal cannabis in Australia. Absolutely, and it's a, a really good example of uh, the process of trying to bring social change, which is so important uh, at this time, because uh, here we are in the early stages of a global paradigm shift, in fact, multiple paradigm shifts happening simultaneously, and the capacity to uh, open up to and um, initiate change within society is going to be key to how we navigate the, the next two decades or three decades. Indeed. Yes. We're also going to be talking, uh, because all of this comes down in a sense to how we... <laughs> how we take in, observe and take in and be open to, be curious about life, the universe and everything. And a little quote I came across this morning, I think uh, from a, a physicist, a German physicist, Heinrich Röhr, and he says, science means constantly walking a tightrope between blind faith and curiosity, between expertise and creativity, between bias and openness, between experience and epiphany between ambition and passion and between arrogance and conviction, in short, between an old today and a new tomorrow. So we're going to be having a look and seeing through the frame of that today about our curiosity, your curiosity, how we close ourselves down, dumb ourselves down, if you will, in society. And of course, with a couple of elections coming up very shortly, New South Wales and federal elections, uh, it's a good time to be not dumbed down by the the discourses that are perpetrated, particularly, uh, in my opinion, uh, by the coalition at this time, but uh, not only that, and how can we stay and remain open to uh, to new energies, new ideas, new science coming in? Yeah, indeed. Uh, some people might be familiar with the I Ching, which is a very ancient Chinese book of wisdom that talks about the process of change. And uh, there's a, a website uh, called the uh, I Ching Weekly, which is put out by Bobby Klein, who he sends out a, a reading each week, and the yes. reading for this week is... Uh, a little couplet that goes like this 
Thunder shakes the roof. You go back to sleep. <laughs> Big thunder comes again. This time, you wake up. <laughs> Fantastic. Lovely. You're with Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans through till 11 o'clock this morning. Let's play a bit of Infected Mushroom, Israeli band, because you've been listening to a bit of Infected Mushroom in the last day or so, Steve. I, I have. I'm, uh, I'm exploring a new, uh, I'm not sure how new it is actually, but uh, anyway, a streaming service called Deezer, D-E-E-Z-E-R.com, mm, yes. um, and uh, I subscribe to that, and they are interesting in that they offer a hi-fi version, so yeah. for if you're an audio nerd like I am, yeah. you can pay a bit extra and get high quality, high bit rate sound. We're talking and about like uh, four times the bit rate of, of the top level yeah, of MP3, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, even more. Yeah, well, more. I, I guess, yeah, so like 320 um, mm. um, is, is, is what you would normally get like off a CD quality yeah. um, extraction. And it's uh, I think it's 1411, you know, 1411 or something that you yeah. can get through the hi-fi version and uh it's i mean if you've got a good sound system decent speakers etc it's really worth it because you pick up a whole bunch of detail in the music that you don't normally get to hear and um and they've got a um, yeah this is not an ad for deezer i'm not uh, i'm not earning any money for this but uh they've got a, a really huge sound library and i've been so i've been exploring a whole bunch of music in there including a bit of infected mushroom yesterday mm. yeah. And in fact, uh, as you've been noticing, it seems that the algorithms uh, with this particular service compared to some other services uh, were particularly amazing and sophisticated somehow. Yeah, so uh, on the weekend, I, I programmed a couple of hours of music and then I just let it go on auto and play recommended tracks after that. And, and I got about three or four hours of really consistently good and appropriate music mm. that I hadn't, you know, most of which I hadn't heard before. Mm. So it was very interesting. Fantastic. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Yeah, and that's going to be absolutely fantastic. And congratulations to our own Sister Mary Saturday mornings uh, for organising this first of these house concerts around the area. They're going to be wonderful and we're going to be broadcasting them for, for Bay FM. Good stuff. We're going to be talking very shortly, as I said, to Lucy Haslam, who is the organiser of the United in Compassion Symposium on Medical Cannabis, coming up on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of March in Tweed Heads. We'll give you details about that if you haven't heard about it. We'll be talking to her very shortly. But just to set that up a little bit, um, Steve, we were talking a little bit about the change process itself and uh, in respect of last week's conversations. Yeah, last week we looked at uh, change and particularly changing human values and how that can set up conflict and tension between different value sets. And uh, I think the whole cannabis and uh, drug prohibition issue is a, is a very good example of uh, how change can take place on a large scale mm. and also how change is resisted uh, you know, by, by people whose values uh, can't open or can't accept you know, the, the new ideas and those sorts of things. So uh, it's going to be very interesting talking to Lucy and hearing about her experience and her impression of... Um, you know what, what have been the good things about uh, what has been achieved around medical cannabis in Australia, and what are the obstacles that she's run into, and you know the kinds of uh, behaviours that she's seen from different people and their, their yeah. acceptance or openness to new things or lack of. Mm. It's going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Absolutely, and as we've uh, discovered, um, a country, for example, like Canada, which has um, had medicinal cannabis on the schedule for quite a significant amount of time, I think since two thousand one. Did you? Did was that the date uh, you found? Yeah, yeah, 2011? I, yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. So I was surprised at that. Yeah, uh, you know, I know they recently um, made it legal recreationally in Canada, and they're this, only the second country in the world, you know, where the whole nation has uh, mm. accepted legalized after Uruguay. recreational cannabis use after Uruguay. Yeah, yeah. so. That's very interesting, and obviously they're they're uh, one of the most progressive countries in the world when it comes to this particular issue. And three hundred and fifty thousand people in Canada 
have uh, have been approved for medicinal cannabis, 300,000, 350,000 over some time in Germany, which apparently legalised cannabis, medicinal cannabis in the same way as Australia about the same time, has 100,000 people who are legally able to obtain uh, this, uh, this uh, medicine. Uh, and Australia uh, at this point has about 3,500, one-tenth or less of uh, a given population population. Uh, um, Comparisons, yeah, about one tenth of of, um, of the German things. So there's something clearly wrong with the system. Yeah, look, you know, it's not unusual for Australia to be lagging behind the rest of the world. I mean, this is this is something that many <laughs> people have been aware of for a long time. That uh, you know, sometimes it can take fifteen or twenty years for Australia to accept something that's accepted overseas. And uh, you know, part of the reason may be our physical isolation from the rest of the world. Mm. I mean, Canada mm-hmm. is right next door to the US, you know, which is certain states in the USA have been leaders also in the acceptance of cannabis use. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I wonder whether that close proximity, physical proximity, you know, has an impact on, on things. I'm sure it does because, mm. you know, a lot of it, a lot of, I mean, change is essentially uh, very closely tied to the communication process. And the yes. faster that communication happens, the faster change happens. Yeah. And there's a difference between you know reading about things in the paper, hearing about them, or you know seeing them on the internet, and actually meeting somebody who has experienced it personally. Mm. And I think that impact of you know personal contact would would have a certainly play a key role in uh, helping people to accept change. You know, it's one thing to say oh, I read about this on the web, but it's another thing to say oh, I met somebody who actually did this, and they said it was fine. Uh, and it was you know it was actually good, contrary to what something what some people are saying. So I, I think that has a big part to play in the fact that Australia does lag behind yeah. often with these issues. You also notice that a lot of Americans, even though there are more advanced laws in many states in America regarding these issues, particularly in places like Colorado that we know about, California, I think, uh, but a lot of Americans are crossing the border into Canada to get a, gain access to, uh, to medicinal cannabis there. That's right. I, I was reading up a little bit on uh, cannabis timeline for mm. legalisation this morning, and uh, they, they sp- that mentions cannabis refugees in Canada. Uh, it says there are cases of uh, users of medical cannabis in the US who, on being persecuted in their own country, have fled across the border to Canada and uh, sought asylum under the United Nations Refugee Convention. Seriously, yeah. Well, I guess Trump can either not build a wall or maybe Canada will have to build a wall there in Canada and the US border. That'll be a big wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen, a seen a lot of jokes about that. A wall of ideology of some sort or other. Yeah, the other interesting thing is that uh, Claire Grace, in his research, he wrote that during times of oh, yeah. change, people often increase their drug use. Mm. And, and there are good reasons for that because uh, changing your perspective can help you find new ways of doing things. And uh, and so this is also important from that perspective. You know, the being cannabis, Canada, cannabis, cannabis being a, a psychoactive substance. Yes. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM. Yeah, you're tuned to Future Sense here with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans, and it's uh, 9.33. We have on the line from Tamworth, a great pleasure to welcome Lucy Haslam to Bay FM this morning. Good morning, Lucy. Good morning, Nick. Very nice of you to join us this morning. We've uh, already mentioned that you, uh, some of your, your history and your background in terms of organising um, the, uh, the upcoming conference in Tweed Heads on uh, on uh, medicinal cannabis uh, on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th. But you've, this is, uh, you've organised uh, conferences, similar conferences since 2014, is that correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. I, I organised the first one that Australia had in 2014 and we've done uh, two other events since then in, uh, in Sydney and Melbourne. So first time in the, in the northern part of the state and um, hopefully reaching out to people in Queensland as well. Yes, indeed. Now, you, of course, have a very personal story, how you um, came on to being, being a strong advocate, more than a strong advocate, really the leading advocate in Australia for, for medicinal cannabis. Can you give us a little bit of a, a brief background about your own story and your son, Dan? Um, yeah, look, I, my, my youngest son, Dan, was um, diagnosed with stage four bowel cancer in 2010. He was just 20 years old at that stage. And he had five years of very grueling treatment. Um, by four years in, he was getting very, very sick, um, having continuous chemotherapy. And he'd, uh, he, he literally had to be hospitalized every time he had chemotherapy because of the chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting that he suffered. Uh, he was losing a lot of weight. He had no appetite. He was very anxious, very depressed. And, you know, we tried him with medical cannabis as a, an absolute last resort. I was very averse to um, cannabis use. My yes. husband had been in the drug squad for many years. Um, I was a nurse and had been taught it was a dangerous gateway drug. And But, you know, we were so desperate by that point. We, we would have tried anything. And when we tried it with Dan, it was like an absolute miracle. Um, it literally stopped him vomiting and gave him an appetite immediately. And, you know, I just can't stress that enough. It was it was just really the godsend that we were looking for at that time. And you started with him. You co-founded UIC, United in Compassion, to look at working on amending the Narcotic Drugs Act. And he did that actually on the third anniversary of that act in 1967 being passed and the fourth anniversary of, of the passing of Dan on 24th of February just couple of weeks ago, four years ago. Um, so yeah. the current situation is, is pretty dire. We mentioned before we started with you looking at some figures, for example, <clears throat> you'd be able to flesh them out with a country like Germany, which apparently uh, legalised in the same kind of way medicinal cannabis at about the same time as Australia. But in Germany, with uh, say twice the population of Australia, there's about 100,000 approved um, script or uh, uh, access yeah. to medicinal cannabis compared to only 3,100 or so in Australia. So that's yeah, obviously look, something funny that, about that. that. Yeah, yeah, and, and those numbers aren't actual patients. They're just approvals. So, you know, they could be repeats. They could be people that actually, and, and this I imagine would be a certain percentage of it, people that get approval then find the cost of the product that yes. they're approved for and realise that they can't, can't possibly afford it. So they don't follow through. So... Mm. There's not a lot of transparency in those figures and, um, you know, I, I find it very hard to believe that the Australian government is patting themselves on the back over such ridiculous figures when we know that, you know, there are possibly hundreds of thousands of Australians that are using the product from the illicit market mm. um, for medical purposes who aren't being having their needs met or addressed in any way, shape or form. Lucy, those uh, 3,000 and some Australians who've got approval to use medical cannabis at the moment, how many of those do you think would be having supply issues? Oh, look, um, I think a great number of them are having supply issues. Um, but, but the biggest one, of course, as I just mentioned, is the, the cost. The sheer cost is just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> You know, something really has got to be addressed. And, you know, and, and you'll probably notice that the politicians are all staying incredibly silent on this, even though we have state and federal elections coming up. 
Um, there's not a peep out of them on medical cannabis. And, you know, we're looking for a hero at this point, someone who's actually going to do something meaningful and realistic for patients who are, who are already suffering um, from whatever their conditions are. And we're talking about some really sick people here, people with terminal illness, you know, end of life sort of stuff. We're talking about children with intractable epilepsy. You know, um, these are people whose absolute whose whose lives depend on medical cannabis, um, and I just can't believe the lack of humanity around this. Well, our show, Lucy, uh, as you probably know, is called Future Sense, and we we're focused on global change and the dynamics of change, and particularly the role of human values and changing human values in that process. And I think uh, this is a really interesting issue to look at in, in terms of um, people whose values might stop them from being open to to even looking at you know the possibility of changing to a medicine uh, or accepting a medicine like medical cannabis. Um, and I'd be interested in your opinion as to you know what you think the major obstacles have been at a at a human level uh, when you talk to politicians and other people who have the potential to make change in society. You know what what do you see the key things, the key aspects of their behaviour and personality which seem to be uh, you know creating speed bumps or roadblocks. Oh, look, I think, you know, the war on drugs definitely plays a huge role. And, I mean, cannabis was um, vilified for over 100 years. So the only research into cannabis has been on the harms of cannabis. Um, you know, it's been very difficult to study cannabis for any other purpose other than that. Um, you know, like myself, I, I considered cannabis was a dangerous gateway drug because that's what I'd been taught. Um, so I had my own personal biases that I had to get over. And the only way to get over those is through education. And that's why, you know, we have this education vacuum. And that's why I fight so hard to put on things like these symposiums with um, little funding, um, really, is because I need to change opinions. And you can only do that through, through educating about the science. But at the moment, we have this denial of the science, which is quite, um, it's quite deeply entrenched in our, in our bureaucrats. Um, and, and, and our politicians, they just, and, and even in our medical profession, sadly, that they don't know what they don't know. But not only that, they don't want to know what they don't know. And, you know, I just think that patients should always be at the fore of this. You know, we should be thinking about what is, what is the best for the patient. And surely it is not sticking your head in the sand and denying that this is going on. It's actually recognising and reacting and being compassionate around the need. Um, and to, I don't know why it's it's all about at a political level it's all just about getting re-elected um, you know but somebody hasn't actually switched the light on and realised that this is politically very popular um, the Australian people by and large are right behind this and um, there's so many other benefits for Australia I just don't uh, I don't understand really what the, the holdback is apart from ignorance yeah, we've um, run we've run into you know very very similar issues uh, with the organisation that I'm co-founder of Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine in our campaign to try and have uh, some formal research initiated here in Australia around psychedelic and psychoactive medicines um, and we have had a re some recent success as I was uh, mentioning to you off air with the psilocybin study that's uh, going to be going ahead very shortly in Melbourne with St Vincent's Hospital uh, which is a great breakthrough but. 
um, from a human values perspective, uh, this is something that I've studied for, for many, many years and we talk about regularly on the show, there are a couple of different value sets at play here. So it's not just, it's, it's not sort of one blanket uh, reason that the resistance is, is uh, occurring. One of the issues is that people who have um, absolutistic values often latch on to a truth. And, and in some cases, a, a classic example can be like a religion where there's a set yeah. of rules that you must follow in order to live a good life. And anything that sits outside that rule set, they can't even consider. So, you know, it's not about rationalizing. It's not about explaining the science. It's just that it doesn't fit with their rule set for life. And so that, that can be, you know, very, very resistant to change that attitude. Um, but another one is the stems from the, the more contemporary, modern, scientific, industrial uh, era values, which are about... Um, personal agendas and personal success and often when people are pursuing their own success it's a little bit like playing a poker game where you keep your cards held close to your chest and you don't necessarily reveal what cards you have or even what your real intentions are and uh, and we see that in politics where politicians are unduly influenced by um, corporations for example and then they pursue an agenda which is not explicit uh, and often they'll show up looking very strange and ignorant in public because they've got an underlying agenda that's not being expressed yeah. that they won't talk about. And, and something I'd be interested in hearing your opinion on is the possibility, uh, well, I, you know, I think it's a certainty to be honest with you, but how much do you think lobbying is influencing this resistance, for example, from industry like Big Pharma and also the drinks lobby, which have a, a very serious interest in resisting other recreational drugs coming onto the market? Yeah, look, I don't, I don't doubt that for a minute. I mean, obviously I can't prove it, but if you look at... Uh, you go back to 2014 when Mike Baird um, sort of met Dan and um, very quickly wanted to change things in New South Wales, and I believe he was very genuine in that. Mm. Um, it was it was like this sort of roller coaster took off, and you know we had lots of media attention, and there was a lot of public opinion and conversation happening, and it became clear that the Australian public were behind this, and the, and therefore it looked like the political wave was moving forward um, very quickly. But then all of a sudden we went through this transition where things started to slow down and um, there was no obvious reason for it. But, you know, I can only imagine now um, it was what was going on in the background. It was it was the backroom conversations that were probably being held by these lobbyists with mm. the politicians that, you know, who, like you say, had a vested interest for slowing this down. Um, you know, in New South Wales, um, I'm going to stick my head on the chopping block here and say that there was a very deliberate attempt from within the government by certain senior ministers to go against the Premier's wishes and to slow this down. And, I, I you know, I've heard of this um, firsthand now from somebody who was there who felt it was important that I understood why things very quickly came to an abrupt halt. And at that time, I used to be saying to the Premier, what, what's going on, Mike? Why isn't this happening, you know? And he would be reassuring me that they're working hard behind the scenes, but unbeknownst to him and myself, Yes, they were working very hard behind the scenes, but they were working out on how they could stop it, how they could slow it down. And it came down to things as sinister as, you know, insisting on evidence for it through RCTs, wrapping it up in clinical trial evidence. And, you know, we, we all know that clinical trials take a lot of money, they take a lot of time. And if you make those trials unpalatable to patients, that mm. takes a long time to recruit. And as it has played out, that's exactly what was happening. And I can see that you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, that was 
very definitely um, actions that were put in motion by senior bureaucrats and senior ministers in New South Wales government. And with that knowledge now, I just, um, oh gosh, it's a bitter pill. It's a really bitter pill to swallow. And I think it's time that the Australian public and and New South Wales public ahead of the election know what's been going on. Um, You know, we've had to fight hammer and nail for patients in New South Wales to be approved. And we only had to, we did that by bringing um, to public attention some of the, the situations that were going on um, with people being denied access. And you know, things are a little bit, in, little bit better in New South Wales now, um, but mainly because we highlighted um, the injustices that were being done, um, yeah. the cruel injustices that were being done on a personal level. Mm, indeed. So, We're talking to Lucy Haslam, who is a prime advocate for medicinal cannabis in Australia, arguably, and a, a, a personal history. Most of you probably have heard of Lucy and heard her interviewed before, I, I expect. But uh, it's a very important time, as you said, Lucy, with the elections coming up. Um, why don't you mention there about some of the uh, the, the, the methods, of the, how, the, the recourse that people have to go to when they cannot get this approval through the, the many hoops that uh, you're, you're describing here and the, the obvious political uh, roadblocks that are occurring. When we talk about the black market that many people, perhaps up to, you know, 50, 100,000 people in Australia, maybe a very large number, uh, accessing black market to, to receive their medicinal cannabis, can you give us a, a, a bit of a sketch about what the problems with that is for a start? Um, well, look, um, for, me, for me personally, I've always felt that sick people um, don't necessarily, it's not really a good spot for them to be having to grow their own medicine. Mm. Um, I'm not I'm not averse to people growing their own medicine, but I just think if you're really ill, and, and I've got to admit, we tried it, um, and we didn't do it very successfully. Um, so that's one of the things. Um, you don't know what strain you're growing. Mm. Um, you don't know what cannabinoid profile you're, you're growing in your vegetable patch. Um, you don't know if your soils are contaminated with heavy metals mm. or pesticides. Mm. Um, you can, you know, if you live on the coast, chances are you're growing something that might be... Um, contaminated with mould or mildew. Um, you know, these are not great options for people that are really sick. Um, but having said that, most people at the moment, that's the only option. Um, so I'm not saying I'm, I'm against it. Yeah. I'm just saying that we shouldn't be in a position where people are having to rely on that. Mm. And I guess the biggest factor, of course, is that in doing so, you're, becoming, you're putting yourself into the realm of criminality. Yes. And if you've already got the burden of, of disease or pain or illness, you don't want to add criminality to the mix because let me tell you, um, I get contacted by a lot of patients who've had that knock on the door from the police and it just puts their lives into a completely different space. You know, they're already stressed enough. This is adding massively to the mental health issues of many, you know, many really sick people. Um, and, you know, while it's all lovely to say that police can exercise discretion, let me tell you that discretion is not being exercised um, by a lot of police, and that's um, really unfortunate. On that topic, uh, there's a current issue with a veteran in Townsville, Lee Donnellan. Can you just give us a bit of a sketch about what's happened uh, for Lee up there? Oh, look, he's um, he's had a really rocky road. He's a he's mm. a a war veteran uh, with service in Afghanistan. He has PTSD and um, he began medicating himself um, quite well using using cannabis. He was able to get off a lot of the opiates that Mm. he had been uh, become addicted to through his war service. Um, He he basically um, wanted to go down the legal route. He tried very hard, fought 18 months um, to get approval through the 
the regulated system. He, he got given that approval as I think the first veteran in Australia saw the price of the product and then obviously couldn't afford it uh, as a pensioner. It's like $1,800 um, a month or something, $1,800 a month or thereabouts. Look, I, I'm not exactly I think sure I read that, that. that yeah. wouldn't surprise me. Um, he's fought very hard to get his, you know, he's a gold card holder. Mm. CVA pays for all his other medications, yet they're, you know, not wanting to um, approve the payment of, medic- of, of his cannabis um, because it's an unregulated product. Um, so he's been, you know, trying to do that for a long time. Before Christmas, he couldn't get his supply because um, of, you know, supply issues with the with the importer. Um, then I think the floods played an, played a part in him not being able to access it through the local pharmacy. So in desperation, he started growing it himself. And this is a man who needs to keep himself stable. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, this has been proven to be the best source of treatment for him yes. um, so unfortunately he was you know got the knock on the door from the police on Friday mm. um, growing a small amount of medicine for himself um, and you know here we go again mm. um, this man has al- already got PTSD he's a, he's a war hero mm. um, and we're treating him as a criminal yes indeed um, you know I think we can do a lot better than that in this country and you know, over the weekend, I contacted Dr. Sue Sisley from America, who's doing this massive study on PTSD with war veterans over there. Um, and, and I told her the situation. She's absolutely you know, free, willing and available to, to lend her expert advice, um, should, should that be required in Australia. Um, you know, this is something that's helping veterans all around the world. In Israel, for goodness sake, they, you know, it, it's supplied by the government for the yeah. veterans for PTSD. What, what was her name again? Sue Sisley. Oh, you know. Yeah, so, Sue yes. Sue Sisley. We, yeah. We've, uh, our organisation, PRISM, has been working very, very closely with MAPS in the US, and, of course, Dr Sisley is, uh, is as I understand it, yeah. doing her study through and with MAPS. And I think she'll be at the uh, symposium in Tweed Heads. Is that right? Uh, no, unfortunately, she couldn't make it this oh, okay. year um, because, because of her trial work. Um, so uh, her reporting period is just about here. So... Right. She has a lot of um, a lot on her plate at the moment, but we, you know, we really are looking forward to hearing the results of that trial. That will be the, one of the biggest trials ever on on PTSD. And uh, even though I haven't heard the results, by all accounts, anything that she's given away so far is very favourable. Um, That's great. And, you know, this is something that she feels completely passionate about. And you know, like so many of us, she started out with this opinion of, oh, you know, what are these guys talking about when they're saying they're getting benefit from cannabis? You know, they're just a bunch of stoners. But she's been um, human, humane enough to want to look beyond the anecdote and, re- you know, translate that to absolute research. And, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, you know, what her patients have been saying has, has been validated by the research. But here in this country, we don't even want to hear that there's research going on in other parts of the world, you know? That's, um, that's right. And, and yet there's been cannabis research happening in Australian hospitals for many, many years, uh, which has been absolutely under the radar, which I'm sure you're aware of, uh, through, uh, I think it's, um, G, is it GQ Pharmaceuticals from the UK? Oh, GW G, Sorry, GW Pharmaceuticals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they've yeah. had, they've had yeah. clinical trials happening in numerous Australian hospitals for many, many years, well, haven't they? Well, they... Well, they, they, they they have supplied the New South Wales trials and I believe the Queensland trials now. But can I say one other thing about GW Pharmaceuticals? That product is products that they make, such, such as Epidiolex, for the, which are being used in the paediatric epilepsy trials, 
Um, they also use sat uh, produce Sativex for um, uh, uh, muscular multiple sclerosis. Sorry, those products you know work for some people, but not for everybody. So what actually has happened with um, the use of um, putting you know, the, the deals that have been done by at a government level with GW Pharmaceuticals has actually been very detrimental to mm. a lot of Australian patients because if you look at Epidiolex, for example, there are children that won't respond to Epidiolex um, but will respond to other cannabis products. But because of the deals at high levels, then you know that those children are excluded from accessing anything other than epidiolex. Now that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And is that um, is that because it's a plant extract uh, and and not the full uh, you know range of compounds that you find in the plant? Is that, is that do you think that's the reason why they're not responding? Uh, well, look, I mean, I think GW do have a lot of clinical trials under their under their belt, and to their credit, um, and that's a great thing. And the government, you know. Like I said, they want to hide behind the idea that, you know, you must have evidence and you must have trials. So um, Sativex is the only product that's um, registered as being available on the, um, on the ARTG in Australia. So, yeah. you know, for them, that's, that's a safe option. Yeah. Um, but every other product, every other cannabis product is an unapproved, medi uh, unapproved medicine. So basically the way Australia's chosen to regulate cannabis has really put a lot of all these products into a regulatory limbo. So they're approved, unapproved medicines. So, and that plays into the cost factor because they're never, ever going to be available on the PBS because they are unapproved. Yeah, and so, um, for listeners who, who might not be aware, one of the key issues behind all of this is that uh, cannabis can't be patented because it's, it's a plant and it's in the public domain. So big pharmaceutical companies generally have not been interested in uh, producing and marketing cannabis products because they can't exclusively market them and make money at them. They can't own the intellectual property. Mm. And so uh, GW Pharmaceuticals have got around this by patenting a delivery system uh, and uh, and getting around it that way, and and they've certainly, I mean, they've been pioneering in in terms of big pharmaceutical companies pushing into the medical cannabis market, but it's been problematic, as you say. Mm. Yeah, and and also the cost of those products um, is is very high. Um, you know, there, there, there's just so many problems in this space. Um, you know, that's why I say we we need a hero, we, political hero, to try and sort this out and. You know, I think really the push is going to come from the, the independents and the minor parties, um, people like Richard Di Natale, um, who really has recognised the problem. Mm. Um, he actually, you know, the way he sought to set this up in the beginning through the regulator of medicinal cannabis bill, which he announced back at our 2014 symposium, that recognised that all these potential problems could crop up and hence the need to regulate cannabis independently um, as separate through the TGA model, which we use for all other pharmaceutical preparations. But, um, you know, and, and my feeling is that at this point in time, we need to go back to where we started. We need to throw out the system that we've got. We need to get back to the idea of an independent regulator mm. and sort this mess out. Because just as Richard Di Natale predicted back in 2014, we're going to have issues around access and around cost. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've had to sit back and watch all this play out and, you know, be patient and, you know, pray to God that we don't have a lot of patients that are suffering too much in the meantime. But, you know, here we are, um, all these years down the track, we've got a system that's failing and we've got no politicians. 
uh, other than um, these minor parties and independents who are prepared to acknowledge that there's a problem. Yeah, and one of the ridiculous things is, of course, that Canada, which is a, you know, a country that we often might compare ourselves to, have recently legalised the recreational use of cannabis. So here we are, you know, caught behind all this ridiculous bureaucracy and people saying at least at surface level that they're worried about the risks and we need more research and that kind of stuff. And meanwhile, it's available recreationally in Canada. Yeah, and look, another thing too that really, um, you know, is like salt into the wound of patients and, and advocates is the fact that our, our health minister very quickly um, announced that Australian companies would be allowed to export to the rest of the world. Yes, um, yeah. So... You know, on one hand, they're saying that you know it's it's you know it's too risky, and we need more research, and we you know we have these very narrow guidances for people that are eligible to meet the you know that meet their very strict criteria. Um, in the next breath, he's saying he wants Australia to be a global exporter for the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, it doesn't so, quite add up, does it? It doesn't add up. You know, it just adds up to somebody who's actually thinking about the hip pocket and not about the patients that are suffering. And you know. Someone who I think needs reminding that he's actually the health minister um, and not and not you know in not charge of the wealth of, minister, of, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Lucy, we're going to have to finish up soon. It's very there's so much to talk about here now. The, the conference, the symposium itself, as I've said, is on the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of March, coming up very soon up in Tweed Heads, and it's uh, pro- produced by your organisation, unitedincompassion.com.au. You can go to the website for, the, for, for that, and I'm sure there are still some tickets available for those who are interested out there. And I guess without going into too much detail about the many amazing guests that are coming, people want to uh, get interested in this and perhaps uh, attend one or three days or, or whatever on the uh, on the, the, uh, the menu, then they can go to your website, unitedincompassion.com.au. But just very quickly, well, in the last couple of minutes, we've got a bit of a, a rundown about some of the guests that you have that uh, really stick out because you've got an incredible guest list of, uh, of uh, very uh, professional and uh, well, uh, well-known speakers. Can you give us a bit of a, a sketch of that, please? Oh yes, look, uh, I've got people coming from um, from the US. So Olivia Newton-John's husband, John Easterling, who's a, a plant researcher, yes. dedicated his life to to this sort of study, um, and now obviously helping uh, Olivia to battle her cancer. Um, Donald Abrams, a very renowned and 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 senior oncologist from America, who who made a, a quote, you know, which I heard years ago, saying there's there's barely a, a a cancer patient for whom I wouldn't recommend cannabis. That that really stuck in my Amazing. mind. Mark Ware from Canada, an expert on on using cannabis as an opiate replacement, um, and you know that's something we need to hear about. And then Devi Mary from Israel, who studies cannabis for the treatment of cancer, and that's you know I, I met him years ago in Israel. He was a skeptic, and now he's so excited about what he's able to prove and how cannabis can actually cure cancer. So. Pretty amazing stuff, and you know, just finally, I'd just like to say to patients: if there's, if there are patients out there who want to come along and learn, and who can't afford a ticket, please contact us through the website. We'd love to help you get there. Fantastic! Um, I think Fantastic. that's really important that we have a, give a voice to patients. Mm. Thanks, Lucy. We'll both be there, so we look forward to seeing yes. you. Yeah, thank you very much, okay, Lucy. Lovely. Lucy has them. Yes, you. we'll talk again too. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. 
You are with BayFM. It's uh, 10.08 here on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and myself, Nick Jeans, through till 11 o'clock. And we're going to take a little bit of a look, uh, just a, a sketchy look, or not a sketchy look, a sketch look at the history of cannabis and with regards to social change, because it's got a, a, a checkered history, especially in the last century or so. It does. A, a long and complex history, too. Um, it's uh, It was first regulated in the early 1900s in the US and uh, eventually they introduced what was a, was called the uh, Marijuana Tax Act, mm. uh, which I'm not sure of the details of, but it being a tax act, you know, obviously was uh, driven partially at least by the collection of revenue around the use of marijuana yeah. in the US. Uh, and it's, it's long had associations with race issues in the USA. Oh, okay. Of well, yeah, uh, you know, as go. well, of course, and, uh, and had was closely associated with uh, Mexico and was called the dreaded Mexican loco weed um, and, and also with uh, African Americans as well I'm sure um, and so you know the, the whole issue of uh, cannabis use has been tied up with race and uh, I guess uh, everybody of course has heard of the war on drugs and uh, President Richard Nixon uh, played a key role in introducing legislation in 1970 which um, scheduled cannabis uh, under the the most uh, poisonous you know class of drugs uh, schedule one in the USA alongside with a whole lot of other you know arguably uh, dangerous drugs like heroin and those sorts of things uh, and uh, it wasn't a scientific process at all and this is part of the unraveling which is taking place at the moment is that um, you know there's been this long-term social attitude towards scheduled drugs and in Australia our most serious schedule is nine where which equates to schedule one in the USA and of course um, cannabis was on schedule nine here along with heroin and the like that that's right yeah. and and also MDMA and yeah. um, for people uh, you know like um, Lucy and the, the medical cannabis movement and also um, the organization I'm associated with prism and the psychedelic movement who are trying to have the the usefulness of these drugs recognised, and also the fact that they are actually scientifically proven to be much less harmful than things like alcohol and tobacco. Um, it's hard to get over this uh, entrenched public attitude, which has been fed by government propaganda for many many years, and a lot of money was poured into supporting those legislative changes, which were politically driven and not scientifically driven. And uh, a lot of money was also poured into scientific research. And as Lucy was saying, uh, you know, when the, the government or institutions have an agenda to find a particular outcome about a substance, they'll pour money into research and they'll say, you know, to scientists, we'll pay you to research this to uh, look at, at the dangers of, you know, drug X. And of course, when you are relying on your funding from an organisation and uh, you can't do your research without the funding, there's a terrible amount of pressure there for you to um, toe the line and follow you know, whatever the, the uh, guidelines of the funding say. And so we've got a lot of research studies that have been done out there which were specifically funded to find problems. And, yeah. um, and the, the way that they, those played out often was that they would be research done on animals, rats and mice, and they would be given extraordinarily high amounts of a particular drug, like ridiculous amounts, 
uh, compared to you know the the amount that a human might ingest. And of course, uh, that's science, isn't it? That's that's good science, right? But it, it's oh it's God. like to, to give an analogy. It's like saying, okay, we want to fund some research into salt, so uh, we'll pay you, Nick Jeans, a salt scientist, to do this research for us, and we're going to give you a hundred thousand dollars for the research. But you have to look at how dangerous salt is, and so you know you end up. Mm. replacing the water container with salt uh, you know and forcing it down the the mouths of rats and mice and they all die um and you know what relationship does that have to the fact that salt is is actually quite useful and relatively harmless when you sprinkle a tiny amount on your food at dinner time mm. you know it's it's just a ridiculous situation and the same thing has happened with drugs like mdma and uh, and also cannabis. I mean, cannabis is, is you know more problematic in that sense because it's very very hard to kill something with cannabis. In fact, I'm not sure it's ever been done. And there is, as most of you would know, a history of medical cannabis going back to ancient times. Ancient physicians in many parts of the world mixed cannabis into medicines to treat pain and other ailments. It's been known for a very long time, of course, amongst many other amazing uses of this particularly extraordinary plant. And has uh, I mean, how many compounds? Because the, the the two classes of compounds, there's hundreds of compounds in. It's a very yeah, extremely uh, complex plant, isn't it? Yeah, I'm not. It's not my field. I'm no. not an expert on cannabis, but I, if I remember correctly, I think there are over 300 different compounds yes, in the plant, which is just extraordinary, and yeah. and it explains why it is so you know useful. It's, it has so many uses because there are so many different compounds in there. Exactly. And the other thing that some people might not know, of course, is that we actually have cannabinoids. Uh, in, our in our body, body. naturally, mm. which are called endocannabinoids, yes. endo meaning that they're produced internally. Yeah. Um, and so we have naturally occurring cannabis receptors that are just sitting there waiting to, um, you know, to accept a, mm. a cannabinoid. Mm. And this is why, of course, um, you know, it's, it's such a, it can be such a useful substance for humans to use also. Yeah, uh, and our good friend Ross Hill, who's been a guest on uh, this show a couple of times, sent us a, a, a thing. I haven't had a good look at the whole piece. It's a... Um, a study from the Journal of um, Psychoactive Drugs comparing mental health across distinct groups of users of psychedelics, MDMA, psychostimulants and cannabis. Uh, and I gather that the, the result uh, has come out that uh, users of these particular substances uh, have no less uh, baseline mental health uh, issues than anybody else. They're not, they're not less mentally healthy, let's put it that way, whereas apparently those users of uh, legal uh, substances such as alcohol uh, in certain demographics tend to have mental health problems already and probably in some ways, um, arguably, in my opinion, aggravated by the excessive use of alcohol and other um, and other stimulants. And of course, we mentioned opiates there with Lucy Haslam and the, the replacement of, uh, of medicinal cannabis uh, over opiates. and Prescription the, opiates. Prescription opiates, yeah. which we have a serious problem with in this country and certainly in America. Even the Trump has mentioned about the opiate uh, uh, epidemic yeah, in, in the I, US. You know, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure that uh, more people die from misuse of prescription drugs in Australia than illicit drugs. It's, yeah. you know, the, it, the numbers are extraordinarily high with prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. And uh, prescription opiates are, are a big issue, and um, the the bottom line is that you know this you really can't argue with the science. I mean, you you just look at the facts of how many people are harmed from alcohol use in Australia. For example, mm-hmm. on average, uh, fifteen people die every day in Australia from alcohol related illnesses and issues. 
uh, and uh, you know how many people die every day from marijuana in Australia? None, mm-hmm. probably. And as Lucy Haslam also indicated, you know the the politicians, other than the uh, the Greens and the minor parties, are suspiciously quiet over this without actually touting directly um, alcohol or other substances. They're basically by their silence, sort of advocating for the the, the status quo, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, if you put yourself in the shoes of the alcohol industry, for example. Uh, it must be a tremendous risk to to their bottom line, their their income, their profits, uh, to have another drug, um, you know, entering into their marketplace. I mean, if um, and it's a, I guess they see it as a slippery slope. And you know, while the the, medi- the introduction of medical use for cannabis in Australia is a very controlled and limited issue, it's the thin end of the wedge, I guess. You know, from the point of view of these lobby groups that uh, if it be- does become socially acceptable as a medicine, then the next step logically, and, and looking historically at places like Canada uh, in the USA, is eventually accepting its recreational use yeah. because it, you know, it, it is a, a very harmless drug relative to things like cannabis and tobacco. Uh, and so that is gonna cost some people a lot of money in the long run. And so I guess uh, for them, it, strategically, it makes sense for them to throw money they're trying to resist change yeah. around this, and I'm sure that's what they're doing. Yeah. And not only the, the drinks lobby, of course, but uh, the pharmaceutical industry as yeah. well, because if people are using medical cannabis instead of other drugs, uh, then, you know, again, it's going to eat into their profits, their yeah. market slice. Indeed. You're tuned to Future Sense. That's Steve McDonald and myself, Nick Jeans, here on BayFM, uh, of course, through till 11 o'clock. Pregnancy, birth and beyond is up. Then let's take a little break here. And I should mention just before that we uh, we played a, uh, a, a sponsorship announcement there from uh, Ben Frank- Franklin of the Nationals. Uh, of course, we, uh, we play anybody who... Uh, who uh, pays equally on uh, in terms of sponsorship for uh, political announcements? There's no, there's no f- favour given there, but it's important though because we are producing, uh, offering a forum on the 18th, Monday the 18th, that's next Monday from tonight, down here in the community centre, with all of the candidates for the New South Wales state seat of Ballina, currently held by the Greens, Tamara Smith. Uh, There are four other candidates, along with Ben Franklin, now coming because our good friend and also broadcaster here, uh, six to eight on um, on Wednesday night, or four to six, pardon, on Wednesday evenings is uh, Jimmy James Wright. James Wright, uh, he's uh, standing for keep, and, and also as a candidate from, I'm just reading here from something I haven't read before, sorry about that, for keep Sydney out, the sixth candidate, Lisa McDermott for Sustainable Australia. Yeah, is, won't be there. But there are now actually six candidates. So um, that's the update for Ballina Meet the Candidates. And you can email questions on medicinal cannabis, for example, or anything else to Ballina Meet the Candidates at gmail.com here on BayFM. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. 1029 on Future Sense here on 999 and a couple of tracks there some uh, interesting indigenous music a track called Ngura Rain Song from uh, Karajala Kiridara and uh, after that of course the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Snow and the Chili Peppers have been in the news uh, just now because they've been in Australia and um, they have uh, Flea who I didn't realise Flea the bassist from the Chili Peppers uh, actually was born in Melbourne I did not know that but he's come out on stage and uh, and had a bit of a go at uh, the New South Wales Berejiklian government over their pill testing uh, position. And um, 
else. Uh, as he says, they try to pass a law so it's impossible to, to put on a concert, is what he says is happening there. Make it hard to, for people to go out and see live music? Question mark. This is the stupidest effing thing I have ever heard of in my whole life. And just goes to this incredible um, uh, position of uh, with regards to uh, these kind of substances and the, the, the obvious results that are occurring across the board with regards to social cohesion and uh, and disruption in society and not actually listening to the people and not actually looking at the evidence of things. But uh, there you go. Yeah, we've got an electorate coming up, haven't we? We, we have. Yeah, we have no. a couple of elections coming up. 23rd of March, of course, the state election. Um, and it's going to be a tight one, possibly. It uh, looks like the uh, the daily uh, Labor opposition is positioned to possibly take government, and it's going to depend on a lot of things. And uh, also, of course, the vote for the minor parties, in particular the Greens, how that's going to fall out. Yeah, exactly. And we were talking earlier on the show today to Lucy Haslam uh, and medical cannabis uh, issues were mm. with the centre of the conversation. Of course, she's organising a another symposium and has organized a number of symposiums since 2014 on the issue of medical cannabis trying to uh, promote its acceptance as a a legal medicine in australia and cannabis uh it's a really interesting drug in terms of social change you know if we look back to the last big wave of um, changing values that came through in the 60s and 70s which was an early wave of of what we're seeing we're revisiting now but in a more widespread and a stronger way, the shift from the modern scientific industrial, very rational, materialistic uh, mm-hmm. worldview to a much more humanistic, uh, community-oriented way of seeing the world and way of um, valuing things. Um, cannabis has has been central to that in many, many ways. And, you know, if you read stories about the the hippie movement, the flower power, and the summer of love, and all that kind of stuff yeah. in the '60s, uh, you can't read too much without somebody mentioning uh, cannabis. And um, and the, we, we were just talking in the break about uh, the different terms that can be used for it, cannabis or yes, uh, this is very marijuana, marijuana, uh, which of course is uh, a Spanish word, mm-hmm. and um, I guess uh, the the use of that and the the um, uptake of of that term instead of cannabis is also is tied to politics and social attitudes yeah, in America. It was in like the 1930s or so that that, that change from the word cannabis, which is the more correct. Uh, um, botanical term for the plant species to the word marijuana, as you said, which is a Spanish word. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the website here of uh, NPR, National Public Radio yeah. in the US, Excellent. and uh, they, they ran a, sh- a story a while back on mm. cannabis, and they're quoting a few books and uh, historical facts here. And um, they, in relation to this issue, uh, they said suddenly the drug had a whole new identity, and they quote a, a, a New York Times headline from 1925. 1925. Saying, Mexican crazed by marijuana runs amok with butcher knife. <laughs> um, and it, it's interesting, actually, because it's tempting to think that, uh, you know, the, the U.S. kind of twisted the language. But he said that the, the rise of the use of the term marijuana instead of uh, cannabis actually started in Mexico and was tied to a lot of social fear that emerged in Mexico um, around that time and, and prior to that. And again now, how curious, not particularly yeah, about uh, marijuana, yeah. but certainly partly about uh, supposedly drug trafficking as one aspect and the danger of these criminals and it is rapists crossing the border and stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, any time when there's a lot of change happening, people tend to increase their drug use. And, and mm. the, the underlying sort of psychology of that is that when we go through change, uh, in order to 
be open to and accept the change and enact it in our own world, uh, we have to be able to see different perspectives. And, and one of the most effective ways of seeing the world differently is to alter our consciousness. And this is why we tend to drink alcohol or smoke marijuana or do whatever it is that you might do mm. you know when we feel under a bit of tension pressure stress and there's a lot of change happening around us i wondered in that particular era in the u.s which is of course the era of the 20s the era of prohibition of alcohol whether or not that facilitated in some sense a rise in the use of marijuana cannabis uh, and which point of course and prohibition was broken because people wanted to drink and that yeah that didn't last very long but perhaps that was also the moment when they realized oh there's not going to be as much financial uh, um, uh, money and not money in uh, cannabis and uh, we need to get the alcohol back on the road let's make them make let's make marijuana a bad thing an evil thing it's an interesting question i mean what we can say for sure is that prohibition of alcohol didn't work and in fact it increased the harm because when people couldn't buy properly produced alcohol in the shops they started brewing their own uh, in the back shed mm. and of course uh, often that process went wrong and they they um, you know would occasionally poison themselves and sometimes die from drinking their homemade uh, moonshine yeah. as it was called and the same thing has happened with prohibition of drugs in the present day is it has actually created more harms uh, than it uh, you know addressed constructively and uh, by by making it uh, illegal in that, in that it can't be produced legally and it can't be regulated you can't go to a shop and you know buy mm. one of these psychoactive drugs and get a book of, or a little booklet of instructions saying you know don't operate heavy machinery and that kind of thing um, you know it's left to the to uh, people who to do it illegally and of course they're automatically criminals when they do that mm. and they're often people who can be motivated by many many different things some of them are motivated by pure goodness and wanting to help people but others are motivated by money don't really care what it is that they put out there in the market and of course uh, occasionally it kills people and that also goes back to the value systems doesn't it that approach to things like this and whether people are, are facilitating the the use of one way or the other for money or for the benefit of uh, of people for freedom and for compassion for empathy especially when it comes to medicinal cannabis yeah that's right and so you know what we're motivated by is uh, shaped by our values and our values change as we develop through the various layers of consciousness and, and at the the earlier layers which are mix, less complex uh, we can be very egocentric and just thinking about what we want and, and literally we don't have the capacity to uh, be aware of and sense and think about you know the impact that we're having on other people uh, we're just focused on what we want to get mm. but um, it's amazing to look at how you know these values change as the the dominant value system shifts from one thing to, to another thing one layer to another layer in society and how radically uh, attitudes towards certain things including attitudes toward cannabis can change I've got mm. a couple of little examples here which I'd like to read off yes, please the do. NPR website I love the NPR website the, um, the first one is uh, a an excerpt from the Western Journal of Medicine and Surgery from May 1843. Mm. And uh, Wild the, West. the title of the article is The Indian Hemp. And I'm quoting now, The resin of the cannabis indica is in general use as an intoxicating agent from the furthermost confines of India to Algiers. If this resin be swallowed, almost invariably the inebriation is of the most cheerful kind, causing the person to sing and dance, to eat food with great relish, and to seek aphrodisiac enjoyment. The intoxication lasts about three hours when sleep supervenes. 
It is not followed by nausea or sickness, nor by any symptoms except slight giddiness worth recording. So there you go. That was uh, from the unofficial medicine journal, 1843. That sounds actually quite scientific. Very, it, it very well does. done. It yeah. does, actually. Uh, and um, Observation, science. Yeah. And they, they say here, most of the pre-1900 press references to cannabis relate either to its medical usage or its role as an industrial textile. Yeah. And of course, famously, many people may have heard that the first Ford motor car, uh, its bodywork was made out of hemp. That's right. Yeah. Um, not to mention before that, most of the sails and most of the sailing ships and uh, all, all the, the rope. The rope, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a, another excerpt here, which is from a news article uh, from the Chicago Tribune in 1874. And uh, it's just a great example of how the, the public attitudes shifted in mm-hmm. that time since 30 the, odd years. 30 yeah. odd years or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we go, and I'm quoting now. Not long ago, a man who had smoked a marijuana cigarette attacked and killed a policeman and badly wounded three others. Six policemen were needed to disarm him and march him to the police station where he had to be put into a straitjacket. Such occurrences are frequent. People who smoke marijuana finally lose their mind and never recover it, but their brains dry up and they die, most of times, suddenly. Here you go. Six policemen, boy, it must be a bit like... Um Popeye's spinach, this particular strain of marijuana. Six, I, I think six so. policemen yeah. to restrain the man. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, so it, isn't it amazing how um, opinions can shift and you've got to ask yourself, you know, what was driving the change in attitudes yeah. that led to that uh, very, very different perspective on cannabis use? Indeed. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on Bay FM bit of Angus and Julia Stone there and a track called Nothing Else here on BFM. The last 15 minutes of Future Sense and Sean is up next with Pregnancy, Birth and Beyond. And we've been talking, as it turns out, mostly today about uh, cannabis, medicinal cannabis, but also a bit of the history of cannabis, uh, also known as marijuana. And uh, fascinating how it uh, fits into <clears throat> the, the cultural changes as we as we see them pass by, and we should factor that in in terms of how we approach it right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking. I quoted uh, a couple of articles just uh, before that music break, uh, talking about cannabis, and uh, one article from a medical journal from the eighteen forties, and another article from a. a uh, paper in Chicago in 1970 with two radically different attitudes towards cannabis, mm. one pro and one anti. And one of the things to keep in mind is often these reports, particularly media reports, uh, about people taking a drug are simply an assumption uh, based on you know someone's rough idea or hearsay about what's been taken. And mm. rarely is there actually any scientific evidence that somebody took a substance and, and no information about whether it was pure or mixed with 13 other substances or whatever. And so w- when we see these news articles, uh, and it still happens right to the present day and most commonly around music festivals, which are a huge issue here yes. in New South Wales with Indeed. an election coming up, of course, mm. and the, the uh, Berejiklian government's seemingly uh, hardline and ignorant attitude towards opening up to pill testing. Um, often when there is a 
a, uh, an injury or a death at a, at a music festival from a drug, the media will come out and say, this person died from taking this yeah. without any evidence whatsoever. You know, there's somebody heard or somebody estimated or somebody thought that they took that, but there's actually no scientific evidence. Yeah. And it, even if, if, you know, the person thought they were taking something, there's no evidence that the person was correct in knowing what they took because they bought it illegally and they had no label and, you know, no guarantee of what it's it was. It's very interesting because I've never seen a report post a death or a serious injury with what has been claimed to be ecstasy, for example. Never seen a, a report uh, on uh, actually what was contained in the particular thing they were they've taken. I'm sure they do a test uh, after someone, yeah, so, someone dies. So sometimes the police will uh, issue a report mm-hmm. after the fact are after testing um you know and, and i'm sure sometimes that that's not necessarily communicated well, i know for sure sometimes well, I don't they're not communicated to the public those no. things sometimes they i think they're starting to open up on that but in the past yep. they've actually restricted any, mm-hmm. that information but um so yeah cannabis and social change i know we've only got a few minutes left but i'd really love just to talk briefly about yes. music and cannabis absolutely um which is something that nick and i've read a bit about uh, both being musicians and um, of course, if cannabis was famously associated with jazz musicians uh, Weird early stuff, jazz, century, strange notes, and um, I, I'm just randomly <laughs> pulling uh, quotes and things off the internet here, but there's a, an article about jazz and cannabis, and uh, it says um, in talking about cannabis and music, the wannabe uh, Batman. This this was uh, I think a, a wannabe jazz musician. Um, as far as uh, marijuana and jazz musicians were concerned, uh, he said it was it, the the interesting thing was it lengthens the sense of time, mm. and therefore they could get more grace beats into their music than they could if they simply followed the written copy. Mm. In other words, if you're a musician, you're going to play the thing the way it's printed on a sheet. If you're not on marijuana or cannabis, but if you're using marijuana, this says here, you're going to work in about twice as much music between the first note and the second note, and that's what made jazz <laughs> musicians the idea that they could jazz things up live them up hallelujah yeah exactly and uh, and so it's it's had of course a, a radical impact on the development of music and uh, our human the human relationship with music over the years um, and many you know most psychoactive things uh, apart from changing our perspective on on the world generally they'll specifically impact our relationship with time uh, and often that you know it's about uh, slowing time down and extending it which gives us very different perspectives on basically things. activating more of the right brain essentially which is uh, arguably something we should be doing much more of over the uh, the practical logical mathematical uh, aspect of the left brain yeah that's right and i know when nixon was famously enacting his crackdown on drugs uh, around the 1970 yeah. uh, time period uh, i know that there was specific mention to made to afro-american musicians and the use of marijuana particularly uh, jazz musicians yes and so you can see how the race issue, race issues were brought into it there and, and also i guess the fact that jazz was a radical departure from conventional music at the time wasn't it yeah Absolutely, in the 20s, for sure. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, you've got to factor in also this resistance to change mm. and being afraid of something new and something that sounds a bit weird, something that we're not used to hearing. Uh, and um, it's, it's all very, very complex, but very interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, the Nixon era, I, I just recently saw, I can't remember the name of it, a documentary on uh, John Lennon at that time who moved to New York, of course, uh, around that time, the 70s, at the Nixon era. And, of course, it was Vietnam and it was the uh, the end of the, the Summer of Love or the, that era, that period, Timothy Leary, the uh, the other uh, substances which were being under, under research in uh, Harvard and other major colleges, universities around America under Timothy Leary and... Uh, 
people like um, Richard Halpert, uh, um, Richard Alpert, Alpert Ram Dass, yeah, uh, and the like, and all of that was closed down by the Nixon administration because uh, of its association with the revolutionary um, uh, movement against the Vietnam War, and John Lennon was completely caught up in that as well, and the uh, uh, Malcolm X and many other were seen to be radicals, and often, of course, as you're saying, uh, uh, black Americans, African Americans. And so there was a whole project clearly that went on at that time to stifle, to suppress and uh, stymie any uh, openness in culture of That's creativity right. and, yeah. uh, and uh, a different sort of political movement of the times. And the, the Vietnam War was a major, major political issue that, and uh, Nixon was pushing it and the last thing he wanted was uh, opposition to that and he saw mm. the use of uh, cannabis and also in particular LSD by, yes. by these hippies. Uh, and jazz musicians, obviously, um, as uh, a key influence, you know, on their perspective of the world and their anti-drug attitudes. And, of course, that was, I think, a big part of the motivation for him to crack down on it. Um, And just while we're on on musicians, I'm just uh, reading an article here about Louis Armstrong, uh, who most people would have heard of. Oh, what a wonderful world. A famous brass player. And uh, he first tried cannabis in the 1920s and used it throughout his career, including before performances and recordings. He referred to cannabis affectionately as the gauge, a common parlance of the time. The gauge. Yeah. Interesting. It is interesting, isn't mm. it? Yeah. Thanks for a couple of your texts here. And one text here, wonderful chat. Happy to hear about the progress being made in the cannabis field by such wonderful people. Education is definitely the key and communication with the right language is essential. We must change our values and become open to new medicines moving into the future. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, thank you. Another text too on a different topic, and we have talked about this a number of times, but not a whole thing because we, we're looking into this uh, as part of everything here and there. Someone has written also, Australia needs urgent warning of the imminent 5G rollout. Can that be a future program? Yeah, we have we have mentioned that before, and perhaps we'll come back to it again. Yeah, it's a very tricky issue, very tricky uh, issue. because it's very hard to get uh, reliable scientific information about the radiation uses around 5G and, and from my fairly shallow reading of it, it looks like uh, commercialism is driving the rollout and this is it's basically the same issue that we are encountering with medical cannabis is that yeah. there are commercial lobby groups that stand to lose money if these things don't happen and so they actually they don't want research being done and if there is research there they don't want it being communicated and so that makes it problematic for us to to have a discussion about it Um, you know it's quite possible that there are serious risks and issues around 5g and we may not know unfortunately until it gets rolled out in places and those problems start showing up and we get reliable reports about it indeed We've also um, also been talking a little bit, um, and I may have him on uh, my Friday show, or possibly on Monday show, is uh, former head of the federal police, uh, Mick Turner. Mick Palmer. Mick Palmer, Mick Palmer, Palmer pardon yeah. me. Because he's got an interesting quote when we're talking about um, racial or, or certainly uh, socioeconomic profiles of people. Uh, what was that about? That's yeah, I, I just I tried to track it down, but I couldn't actually find it. But mm. if my memory serves me correctly, um, yeah, he's been very outspoken about drug law reform for many yes. years, and he's part of the uh, Australia Twenty One um, think tank, along with Dr. Alex Wodak and a bunch of other folks. And uh, he, if I remember, if my memory serves me correctly, I remember him saying that you know if he was policing a town, he would much rather that the the people had been taking MDMA than alcohol because it would be a much easier process to keep them in line on a Saturday night. And, uh, something along those lines. Yes, indeed. Well, that's about it all for we've got time for. It's 10.55 coming up, as I said, uh, pregnancy, birth and beyond very shortly. We'll, um, ooh, I've got the track going already. Let's pull that back a bit. Um, 
been bustling and rustling over here this morning. I, yeah, I just I just found a really interesting oh, okay. little uh, anecdote go, here, which I can squeeze it. in Please uh, on this article yeah. where I was reading about Louis Armstrong cannabis. Um, so uh, th- this may not be true, but it says that the most often told fable from Armstrong's uh, relationship with. Uh, Tricky Dicky <laughs> Richard Nixon, uh, who was then the vice president, was uh, 1953. Armstrong, after Armstrong flew out of Japan, he encountered Vice President Nixon at the airport. Oh, really? Um, Nixon was surprised to see the trumpeter and said, Satchmo, what are you doing here? And Armstrong explained that he'd just finished a Goodwill Ambassadors tour of Asia and was now headed toward customs. And Nixon scoffed and grabbed Satchmo's suitcases, saying, Ambassadors don't have to go through customs. And uh, the jazz legend suitcase filled with nearly three pounds of cannabis was carried by Vice President Richard Nixon through the airport, bypassing customs. <laughs> and, and Nixon unknowingly smuggled cannabis into the United States. I wonder if that's true. I mean, it's a good story. That's a good story. Yeah, anyway. true if it's not. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. We'll be back next week, Monday morning, 9 to 11. Thanks, Nick. On Future Sense. And stay tuned to BFM through the day. And as I said before, check in with the Meet the Candidates. If politics is your thing and you want to get uh, even more activated, even more engaged with, then uh, tune in and be there at the Meet the Candidates Forum downstairs here in the Byron Community Theatre next Monday on the 18th. And five candidates out of the six who are standing for the seat of Ballina in the New South Wales state elections will be there. And it'll be hosted by the wonderful Angela Caterns, who's become a good friend of Bay FM post her wonderful time at Triple J and Radio National. So tune into that. And uh, I'll be with you also on Friday from 9 to 11 on North Coast Positive. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.